When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, Heard Tell Show. It's a Thursday. Hope y'all are doing well. It's March the 3rd, year of our Lord, 2022. Whole lot going on in the world. Going to turn down the noise of the news cycle on a couple different stories today. Going to touch in some old stories. Uh, Two stories from the Ukraine conflict. One that we got right, one that we got wrong. We're going to revisit both of them and rehash that. Also, uh, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court nominee, Kentaji Brown Jackson. Our friend M. Carpenter has some writing up. She's working on a deep dive, but in the middle of that, some of the social media nonsense got to her and she'd had enough of it. We'll cover that. We're going to end the story uh, with one of my favorite food people, Guy Fieri. I know he's polarizing, but a story everybody can get behind and the millions and millions of dollars in charity work he gives and where some of that comes from. Also on the program today, our friend Yalela Salski's back, uh, Consumer Choice Center, Consumer Choice Radio. Usually we're talking markets and economics and things like that with him, but he lives and works in Vienna, Austria. He's only about six hours away from the Ukrainian border. So we're going to get a EU, European view from people on the ground there, how things are changing. We're reading in American press a lot about what the Europeans think and how it's changing their minds. We're going to ask him directly, find out from somebody on the ground how this uh, crisis is landing with the people in Europe. He's in contact with people in Ukraine. He has a lot of strong thoughts about it. Uh, Also talk about the technology edge, how things like Bitcoin and technology and Tor servers are playing in the story. Yal Ilosowski is our guest today and always thrilled to have him. But uh, briefly to start the show, we want to do something a little different. We've been opening with Ukraine just about every day because it is such an important story. But I want to touch on this. Uh, Duval Heck died. If you're wondering who the heck that is, uh, he's the guy that invented books on tape. Uh, from the Washington Post. Uh, Mr. Heck was an Olympic gold medalist in rowing, a Marine Corps pilot, and with the establishment of books on tape in 1975, an entrepreneur who harnessed the still new technology of cassette tapes to offer bibliophiles a novel way, that's a clever bit of writing, well done there, sir, a novel way of experiencing literature. He was working for a brokerage firm in Los Angeles in the late 1960s when a roughly one-hour commute on either end of his workday when he became frantic, he told the Los Angeles Times, to escape his daily misery on the road. Radio, he said, offered a little more than bad music and worse news. Some things never change. Found a degree of solace in recorded books for the blind, where he could play on a reel-to-reel machine that rode around like a passenger in his porch. Cassettes, still in their infancies, would soon explode in popularity. Surely Mr. Heck thought that he'd navigated freeways clogged with commuters who shared his miseries. Others might like to listen to books. So he became he founded Books on Tape became the formal name of the business, which he established in 1975, and the rest is history. Audiobooks, of course, we now have them in the digital form, are wildly popular, and you can trace a direct line to programs like this, 
that are multi-platformed for radio and podcasting and use things like YouTube and podcasting platforms directly to what he invented. I bring this up to kick off the program today because we're going to talk a lot about technology. We talked about it yesterday with John McCumber. We're going to talk about it again with Yalel today, who's big on technology and how technology is freedom, freedom of information. We keep talking about these cell phones in our hands. You have the entire depth and breadth of human history and knowledge in your hand. Do something with it other than send cat pictures and to yell about politicians. Technological advances like books on tape, that seems almost arcane now, but think about the power that gave people by getting more information into their daily lives in a practical way. Technology moves fast. My father went to a one-room schoolhouse until he was in the eighth grade, and his son did almost all of his college learning online. That is an epic change in how people learn and get information. It's a big piece of freedom that we don't fully appreciate. So we wanted to lead off the show talking about books on tape. To a lot of you, especially if you're younger than me, I'm 41, books on tape sounds like some arcane thing from a faraway time. But only a generation ago, it was the gateway to knowledge and freedom and the power of the mind to be able to do something with your commute other than just yell and honk at the person in front of you. Think about the technology we have and how we can use it for good and how we can use it for freedom. And as uh, Yael is going to talk about in a minute, you can right now where you're at, help people in Ukraine fight the Russian invaders by using technology, by giving them part of your internet ability, by using your free speech rights to advocate for people who may not have them. We don't take enough time to appreciate the wonderful age we live in. And we don't take enough time to maximize the freedoms and the abilities we have. So we honor the founder of Books on Tape on his death who paved the road for things like podcasting and things like YouTube and all this technology we enjoy. Maybe 40 years from now, somebody will look back on what we're doing and say, wow, they used their technology to advance freedom, to advance human rights, to make more people more free and more happy and get more opportunity. And if we're not doing things every day that people 40 years from now can say that, we better change it up now. Otherwise, they'll be saying something very different about us if they remember us at all. We're going to get into a whole lot more on Hertel right after this. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. want to update a couple of stories of what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, we've been talking about it a lot, tried to talk about it just a little bit less today because it looks like events are unfolding where we're going to be talking about it uh, for quite some time to come. But two stories I wanted to update. Uh, one story we got right, one story we got wrong. We always hold ourselves accountable here. Uh, one story we got right, you've seen over and over again pictures of, quote unquote, the convoy, the massive column of Russian materials to the north of Kiev. And we've been talking on social media for several days that that's not a convoy, that's a logistics failure. Convoys don't sit in the same place for days on end and stretch for up to 40 miles, some estimates say. The Russian logistics suck. Now, I've been telling you, logistics make the world go round. And even more so in wartime, the Russian logistics have been an utter disaster in this campaign in Ukraine. Now, the Ukrainians are brave. They're fighting hard. They're doing everything they can. But the Russians are doing a lot to help them out. Their logistics are bad. Their comms are bad. They don't seem to have good command and control over their military and their army. All these things work to good for those defenders of Ukraine who are fighting off this illegal war crime, war of aggression that Vladimir Putin has unleashed on them. But we got that one right. Even U.S. intelligence officials are having to report on it now that that column is stalled. It's not moving. It's not going anywhere. That's a logistics failure, folks. 
You can do, you can have all the fun, high tech military stuff you got, but beans and bullets make it go. And if you can't figure out how to get it there, coordinate and communicate, then do you a darn bit of good. But a story we got wrong, uh, along with a whole lot of other people, we were sharing it on social media. We didn't make a huge deal of it. We just kind of passed it on. But nevertheless, uh, there was the famous story of the people on what was called Snake Island, the defenders of Ukrainian, the warship. We have the audio. The Russian warship told them to surrender. They told them to go F themselves. A uh, great moment in defiance, but it was reported they were all killed. It looks like they were not killed. They're all alive. They were actually captured. These sorts of things go to, to tell you, though, that you have to be really careful with the fog of war. Again, we're not on our social media promoting a lot of the viral videos, things like this, because remember, the, the Ukrainians were on their side. We want them to win, but they're also putting out propaganda. And I don't blame them. If I was them, I'd be doing it, too. But you got to be discerning here. Russians are doing propaganda. Ukrainians are doing propaganda. And there's a lot of third party people using old footage and other things for their own means to try to drive this story. So just be aware. Use discernment. When you get things wrong, it's fine. Just say, hey, I got that one wrong. I knew what I knew then. I know something now and we adjust. That's how grown folks handle things. But those two stories are emblematic of what we're going to be dealing with for a couple months, probably in Ukraine in the aftermath. Make sure you get the story right. Make sure you discern it and then come back and cover it. We don't do drive-by here. We cover a story, then we come back and make sure we got it right. We'll do more Hertel right after this. Ah, Hertel show. Uh, he's back. It's been a little while. We missed him. I am so thrilled to see you from the Consumer Choice Center. He also does uh, some background work, which basically means I ask really dumb questions and he answers them patiently on how to do things like technology and all sorts of stuff like that. My friend, uh, how are you doing over there in Europe today? I'm doing great, Andrew. Thanks so much. And uh, congrats on the program. Uh, yeah. I think the first time we spoke, we did not have video capabilities. No. We have since ramped up <laughs> and uh, doing a great job doing the daily program. I know a lot of people are listening in, a lot of people tuning in. I know that your numbers are going up. So uh, thank you for allowing me to be a part of the experiment. And he is an integral part of the experience. Make sure you find him wherever he does his stuff. Yalil Ososki. Uh, part of that great consumer choice network, we've had uh, some of his compatriots on. Going to have some more in the future. We just found out. We'll talk about that some other time. All right, buddy. Uh, you're in Europe. You're in the lovely city of Vienna, Austria, one of my favorite countries in the world to visit. I got to imagine, though, that the things in Ukraine are striking you a little differently because you're only about a six hour drive from where this is going on. What's kind of the European perspective for the American press, which, of course, we know we're American centric media? We're hearing all this stuff about the EU and unity and things like this, but how's it actually landing for people that are there like you? Yeah, very. I guess off the top, I have to uh, answer the call of many American political pundits who are now weighing into the waters of which country should you know have accession rights to the European Union. Uh, very funny that most people didn't even know what this process was and are now opining on it as if they are some grand authorities. Uh, so I just wanted to throw some shade at the beginning. Uh, very true. So we are... Uh, just between uh, Austria and Ukraine is Slovakia. Uh, there's Poland that's going to be receiving a lot of refugees. Uh, the latest numbers say anywhere between 4 million and 5 million that will be going westward. I actually think Austria is not really ready for what's about to come. So if we think back to 2015, we obviously had the refugee crisis. And there we had a lot of people who were coming from Afghanistan, who were coming from Iraq, who were coming from Syria. And it was around, you know, let's say about a million. 
And if we're facing, you know, that number with Ukrainians, I don't think uh, many of these countries are really ready. I, A, I don't think many of these people are going to want to settle at all. They obviously want to go back home, want to go back to Ukraine. Uh, but they're not going to settle in Romania and Poland and Slovakia. They're going to go to Germany. They're going to go to Austria. Uh, they're going to go to these countries that are much closer, that have better labor markets, that are you know somewhat a bit more better positioned to help them. So I think that's the primary thing that that people are looking at. Austria is kind of a weird state in the both in the European theater and world theater because it's technically neutral. Uh, and that was really because of the Soviet Union. We go back to 1955. Uh, if we go back to the end of the Second World War, much like Berlin was divided between you know the Allies, uh, Vienna was much the same, and as was Austria. And most of the Americans and the Brits and the French, they wanted to put their resources more into Germany because it was a much larger country. So the Soviets actually took more of a role. So really from 45 until 55, the Soviets kind of ran the show. And the only way that the Soviets agreed to leave Austria at that time is if Austria committed itself to permanent neutrality. Uh, so that's why Austria is not in NATO. And that being the case, Austria has still been very forceful in condemning what is happening, in uh, you know trying to provide whatever resources we can. Again, it's not the most impressive military in the world, uh, but I think location is is really vital. And a lot of people here, you know, are worried about obviously the ramifications. You know, if we, if we even talk about any nuclear disaster, you know, we're kind of in the the firing line. You know, not to mention a lot of uh, Ukrainians, and a lot of people here remember. Uh, Chernobyl, and remember growing up and having to take, you know, iodine pills and all this kind of stuff. They remember not being able to go outside because there were particular, uh, you know, some kind of contaminants that were in the sand or they're in the sky. So this is the kind of stuff that people are thinking about a little bit more here. Uh, the refugee question, I think, is going to be very important in the next couple of weeks. We haven't heard much about it. You know, we hear people are there with water and blankets and everything else, and they're all happy and and you know, all is good. But the problem is that European countries are very bad at assimilating people. Uh, they're very bad at assimilating people generally when there's no crisis. And when there is a crisis, I don't think they do a very good job either. So I'm actually fairly pessimistic. There are a lot of great charities. There's a lot of money that's being raised. There's a lot of great individuals that are going above and beyond, you know, going to the border, shepherding people in. Uh, but overall, very pessimistic view. You know, and it, again, Austria is not a power player. Uh, most of the energy here is pretty, pretty much, uh, you know, secured domestically, either through hydroelectricity, wind energy, and these kind of things. So we don't have the big existential questions that Germany has when it comes to energy and the like. But I, I would say, uh, not a not a good situation, uh, at least from here, particularly for a lot of my colleagues and friends who are from Ukraine or dealing with all of this. Yeah, talking to Yael Alsowski, uh, Consumer Choice Center. He comes to us through the magic of the internet from Vienna, Austria. Uh, Chancellor Niehammer for Austria, you were tweeting about it earlier. He's offering 90 days. Poland's talking about two-year exemption. I think the EU is going to pick up the two-year exemption is what they were talking about in the uh, EU Congress or whatever they call it now. Um, that seems to be kind of where people are landing on it. But you're, you're a consumer choice guy. You're an economic and market guy. One thing, everybody's talking about the sanctions and the energy things and all those things are going to affect the world economy refugees affect the economy greatly and that's one of the reasons some bad actors in the world have used refugees uh, weaponized them they have used them before you talked before about you know getting pushed up out of syria and places like that but talk about that for a second that's something europe 
once they get past this initial bit of crisis, that's something they're going to have to really deal with, though, because refugees do have an economic price tag attached to them. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is that why I mentioned it would be so difficult for many of these European countries to assimilate migrants has nothing to do with you know, the color of anyone's skin or religion or anything else. It's just that the laws here don't work that way. And the labor markets are incredibly rigid. It's not easy to get a worker visa. You know, this is not a visa paradise. You know, these things are stringently regulated. Uh, there's all types of quotas that apply to every single country of people that are coming in. So yes, they can relax those and maybe they will. I think when it comes to how it'll impact, you know, the domestic population, it really comes down to that. I mean, we're going to be in a situation where we're going to have, you know, probably at least 100 to 200,000 people uh, who will be either in, in Germany or Austria, who will be in Ukraine and won't necessarily have the right to work. Uh, most of the men have had to stay home. So it would be a lot of families. It would be a lot of uh, women and children. And there are already a lot of Ukrainians who live in Austria, who live in Germany in these areas. Uh, some of them do have residency permits, others don't. So they work in what we call the black economy. You know, the, the Indians call it black money, but you know, those who basically just doing cash jobs, you know, working at restaurants, cleaning houses, everything that we assume a lot of, uh, you know, Latin American immigrants do in the US, we're going to have a, this kind of situation because the labor markets are not really good at trying to bring new people in. And I think this is going to have a big impact in many of the different industries. The, th the places where we would need folks, you know, particularly construction, these kind of things, you know, these would all be jobs for men who, according to the laws, are supposed to be staying in Ukraine, not allowed to leave. I think that's going to be a huge upheaval. There's definitely going to be a drain on resources for a while. Uh, you know, that's something that's going to be very difficult for the economies to kind of deal with. And we're not even fully opened, you know, after COVID. We have to remember that. We still have a vaccine mandate that is supposed to be enforced here in Austria. Uh, some restrictions still apply in many places. I'm still wearing a mask everywhere I go. So there's, there's a lot of different things that are going to make it difficult for us to spring back. I do, however, believe in the goodwill of people. There's a lot of private people who are dedicated to sponsoring refugees who might be coming, which is, I think, one of the, the better solutions that we can have here. But we got to open up our labor markets. We got to have them more flexible, allow people to come, not just come, but also be able to work, uh, be able to, to earn a living, because otherwise they're just uh, you know, poor refugees and can't do anything. And uh, my family is, you know, we had a history of that as refugees, and I'm sure everyone has a story like that in their family. Yeah, it's good to start with the refugees because I want to put the human interest onto the politics, but we do have to talk about the politics of this stuff. It would appear, uh, trying to find some silver lining in here, that Europe uh, kind of corporately has started to wake up that maybe their post-Cold War existence of the last 30 years was a little bit of a facade. They had lived mostly under the auspices of the United States' protection. Germany, of course, your neighbor to the north at Austria is always kind of attached to the hip to. Uh, an amazing speech by Olaf Scholz that pretty much overturned 30 years of German policy, for lack of a better way to put it, um, increasing spending, a $100 billion infusion into the military. Um, France is talking about it. Uh, Britain's talking about changing their EU commitments. There, there's a real title shift going on right now. It, we'll have to see if it lasts. But politically, does it feel on the ground there that this really is kind of a turning point of, OK, Europe is going to have to start looking to take care of itself defensively? Um, I think there are, I think there's a lot of virtue signaling on that. I don't know if there's the huge shift that's needed. You know, Germany going up to 2% is 
uh, I hate to bring him in, the ghost in the room, but it's what Trump was calling for for a long time. It's what a lot of you know U.S. military experts have been calling for for a long time, and it's just very much true. And I know that you've experienced that. That you know the whole point of NATO was to keep Germany down and to keep the Russians out. And you know what we've done so far with this project, it really has been pretty wayward. And there hasn't really been a focus. You know, there have been some of these things that happened in the Balkans. You know, there were some interventions there. But a lot of Europeans just didn't know what it was for. I mean, there were talks about a common European EU army a few years ago, and it was sort of laughed off because nobody saw that there would be an enemy in sight. And if there was an enemy in sight, we could pretty much guarantee the U.S. would take care of it for the Europeans. Uh, but now they realize that, you know, everyone's kind of, they have to look out for their own interest. And these blocks, you know, the political blocks, whether it be the European Union, whether it be NATO, I mean, all these things are just pieces of papers and small agreements. But as soon as land is taken, you know, there's still an act of war that's going on between Cyprus and Turkey and Greece. You know, there's still kind of this, all these conflicts that have been going on between uh, Macedonia and Greece, you know, all on paper, everything seems, you know, hunky dory, but many of these countries are realizing that they've been putting all of their money and all of their citizens' hard earned tax dollars into healthcare systems, into pensions. And that's why, you know, a lot of European countries are very high on these lists of uh, best places to move to and best social systems. But that really comes at the, you know, the trade off that they don't have the money in defense, they don't have that at all, and they certainly don't have the training and the technology. And a lot of it is just reliant on American military and might. And we saw what happened with Trump. You know, you can only imagine in maybe 10 years from now, we'll have something that's, you know, a Trump 2.0 who will go to the next level and say, well, if you're not paying these bills, we're just going to move. We're going to take all of our troops out of Germany. We'll take all of our troops out, you know, from across the continent and refocus, go somewhere else. Yeah, talking to Yal Elisovsky. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue to talk about the crisis in Ukraine from a European perspective. Going to talk about how technology has affected this. He's been tweeting about that. It's one of his bailiwicks. He explains things in technology that I don't even know exists. So he'll explain that to me like I'm five. More with Yal Elisovsky right after this. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Continuing our conversation with our good friend from Consumer Choice Center. He's also on Consumer Choice Radio on Big Talker Network that shares this program as well, Yael Elisovsky. Um, you took up an interesting point that I hadn't really thought of. It. This is definitely, as opposed to a, it is a shooting war, this has really been a technology war. We've been, we talked to our friend John McCumber about all the cyber stuff going on. You had an interesting take on this too, is people are realizing their personal communication and how they do their social media feeds and how they do their own stuff. It's something you've been hitting on for years that I've known you. You've always talked about these sort of things, you know, have your own separate thing. Don't rely on a big tech company for a server and things like this. But you've been talking about how people communicate, even folks in Ukraine, how they can do things better. Talk about that a little bit, because this has been really interesting. Some of the technology things that are coming out of necessity here. Yeah, I think it comes down to you know, we have these conversations in the U.S. and and sort of the liberal democracies about social media and how far we want social media to go. And, you know, in many other countries, they deal with active blocks, you know, when they go search for things. If you're in Turkey and you're trying to go to Wikipedia, you know, just uh, good luck. <laughs> you know, throughout the entire Arab Spring, many of these dictatorships, one of the first things they would do is shut down the Internet. And we've seen that particularly in this situation, there's a lot of people who are trying to get information. There are a lot of people who are trying to get information, not just in Ukraine, but also in Russia. 
You know, we don't have the most active polls of how much of the population supports what is happening, but there are a lot of people who are dissidents and would like to follow the actual information. And uh, the Russian state has been very active in shutting down platforms like Meta and Twitter and really trying to develop as many blocks as possible. And I'm, I assume, I can only assume they're trying to do the same in Ukraine. So one thing I've seen a lot of people start doing are deploying these Tor nodes. So Tor project is sort of a an encrypted layer, you know, of the internet called the dark net, dark web. Uh, it's a project that was developed originally by uh, U.S. government, the Naval Observatory. And this has allowed for people to connect to the internet anonymously. Uh, it's something that Edward Snowden talked a lot about in uh, his book, actually, that he was running nodes. Running a node just means you're running a sort of a section of the network uh, on your computer and on your internet connection. So what I've kind of done, uh, along with a lot of other people, is provided my internet connection to a lot of the people who are in Ukraine and Russia that are trying to uh, get a lot of this information. So that's one thing. Uh, I think that's happening a lot more. And it really comes down to using these decentralized services. And we're going to be a lot more reliant on them because we have to realize we're only you know, a crisis or two away from large companies that are online, social media or whatever, from being shut down. Um, either because of force or because of government regulation and whatever is happening in Russia, you know, I think a lot of American politicians are kind of drooling to see the amount of power that they have over the internet. Uh, it's not popular to say that. I think it's true because it comes down to information and control. And the more decentralized that we can have our networks and work online, the better information that we can get. There's so many great Telegram channels. You know, Telegram is a great app that was created by a Russian dissident. Uh, that a lot of people are using to get information and share videos, uh, something that's encrypted. Uh, people have been able to use that. People are using things like Mastodon servers, which are like decentralized Twitters to be able to share information and post and not be afraid that they're going to be shut down or canceled or have something deleted. Uh, so I think a lot of these services are necessary. They always are. Uh, but the more that we're able to control it on our own, the more that we can actually have reliable partners and could be sort of a trustless e ecosystem. That's just a lot better. But unfortunately, a lot of the state actors are, are continuing to have more control. And we're seeing that today in Russia. And I think that's why people should be very vigilant and should take as much as they can and try to host it themselves. See, I wanted you to talk about it because you always, you know, your whole thing is consumer choice, the free market, the open market. I think, and I'm guilty of this too, and I'm sure you are too. We tend to talk about this stuff in the abstract a little bit too much. We talk about things like, you know, freedom of speech and technology and you know, personal accountability for what you're doing. But when you have a crisis, if those are skill sets that you develop and they are skill sets in crisis, they have a lot of real practical application. Like you said, you, you can directly assist somebody in Ukraine just from where you're sitting at. You can relay uh, good information against Russian propaganda anywhere in the world if you've got a Twitter feed or a Facebook post. I think this is a good life lesson on this technology stuff of like, yeah, we talk about it politically and culturally, there's a lot of practical application if you stay on top of this stuff. And then when the crisis comes, you're actually better prepared to meet it. And I hope your audience doesn't think I'm shilling, but uh, I think Bitcoin has provided a good example there as well. There's a lot of uh, Russians who uh, live and work throughout Central and Eastern Europe, you know, who have jobs that are in the so-called West, you know, but still have Russian bank accounts and have rubles that they've been saving up. Well, if there's a complete collapse of the Russian banking sector, you know, all that money is going to go away. You're going to have some kind of hyperinflation. So many of them have been looking to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies to try to convert their money. 
And, you know, it's also allowed things like the armed forces of, of Ukraine to be able to collect, you know, upwards of 15 to 20 million dollars in Bitcoin donations from around the world. And we're able to do that instantaneously. And, you know, there are groups of people that I know that are driving back and forth between Poland and Ukraine. You know, they're trying to buy blankets for people. They're trying to buy, you know, all kind of feminine products, things for babies. And, you know, they're soliciting donations in cryptocurrencies and people are able to send that immediately. And people are able to have it in their wallet. They're able to spend it. They're able to convert it. And I think that's something that is, is incredible at this moment to see. Yes, there's going to be a big mainstream media focus on are the you know, Russian oligarchs using this to try to bypass sanctions. Okay, sure, we hear these arguments all the time. You know, the dirtiest dollar that is being you know, shared around by the drug dealers. But we have to think about ways that we can promote value. And one argument that I've seen from a lot of tech people is, you know, we all want to be there. We all want to help. We want to have our particular skill be used in some way to help the people in Ukraine. But oftentimes, the best thing that you can do is work more and take that surplus and donate it to a good cause of people who are already doing something very good, who are already being very effective. And oftentimes that's kind of the mantra of the effective altruism movement. You know, people can actually be more impactful doing that than changing their profile picture. Yeah, yeah. Well, Soski Consumer Choice Center joining us. Uh, you brought it up. I was going to ask you anyway, so you teed it right up, though. Um, I'm more skeptical of Bitcoin than you are. Uh, we've had those conversations. It's not from your lack of effort. You keep trying. Bless your heart. But I think it's unfair. Some people are bringing up, well, the Russians will just move everything to Bitcoin. That, that's not really how that works, though. You can defend the medium here a little bit because like, we know most of the really bad, dirty money from the Russian oligarchs. Most of that goes through somewhere like London. The UK is talking about cracking down on that through the London monetary system or the English monetary system. They can't just go grab that and immediately move it to Bitcoin. That's not how this works. Do you want to answer that criticism a little bit? Because I've seen a lot of that even in mainstream press of, well, they'll just hide it all in Bitcoin. That's not how this works, though. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is it's it's sort of it's what we call this pharmaconic problem is that you have these on ramps uh, to cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. You know, how do you get your U.S. dollar, your euro, your ruble into a cryptocurrency. And today there exists many payment providers, exchanges, brokerages where you can do that. But often, and if not every single case, in order to get that money from fiat to the cryptocurrency, you have to provide your information. You have to provide a photo. You have to provide your street address and you'd have a verification. You know, the, you have all these steps that any of the Russian oligarchs, they're already on these lists. There's no way they're getting past that. Now, if they're using fake identities and passports and all of this, you know, they would be doing that anyway at a Swiss bank, you know, or whatever it might be. So I'm not too concerned about that. I, I think it's that is more a red herring that's thrown up as a way to say that, you know, we should not embrace this digital system. Uh, but, you know, this is an entire ecosystem of, of decentralized digital cash that people are able to send, people are able to receive. And the greatest thing is, is it can never be deleted from your account. It cannot be frozen. It cannot be shut down. You can't be in a situation where you have, you know, an opposition figure in Russia, for instance, who's banded as a terrorist. All of his organizational assets, you know, are called a terrorism organization and he's locked behind bars. That's exactly what happened to Navalny, who is the main opposition figure in Russia, who is currently in jail. He was branded a terrorist by the government and all of the money that his foundation had raised from around the world was just frozen and they couldn't use any of it. 
But what we saw with you know a lot of the money that's being sent over to the armed forces and to charities in Ukraine, they're able to get this money instantaneously. And I think that's the more important part. And people are able to do this on their own, on their phone, on their computer. You don't need a bank. You don't need to have permission. And I think that's one of the greater parts of it. And that's where I think we should focus. You know, when it comes to bad guys doing that, you know, they're doing everything bad in the world with the U.S. dollar or the euro anyway. Uh, so I, I think a, a transition to, to crypto and to digital is, is only good for our humanity overall. Yeah, yeah, well, Sosky. I thought of you the other day because I was we were running down to the beach and I was in the middle of nowhere of an undisclosed location, a little rinky-dink, two-pump gas station, rolled in there, a little country gas station, had a Bitcoin ATM terminal in it, just giggled. I warmed the cogs of my heart. I was like, yep, Yael's taking over the world. All right, let's loop back to where we started, though. Uh, you are in Europe. What What are the folks in Europe the most worried about? You've talked about the refugees. We know the specter of Putin having nukes. He's He's got 100,000-some troops in the field on continental Europe, technically right now, rolling around doing all kinds of unspeakable war crimes. What are they the most worried about uh, today as we sit? I think it just has to come to, you know, if there's no more rationality in Russian foreign policy as if there ever was, what is kind of next? Because there's a lot of irredentism in uh, Europe. There's a lot of, you know, longing and nostalgia for land that has been lost. That's principally, I think, what's happening with uh, the current situation in Russia and Ukraine. You know, there's a lot of this lust that exist in many of these countries. And I, I think that's more what they're trying to figure out. And I think where more, most people are, are probably scared and with good reason are in the Baltics. Uh, they're in places like the Republic of Georgia. These are places that have been warning against Russian aggression for many years. And oftentimes, you know, too many people in the sort of apparatus and people who can afford to sit around and think about policy all day, you know, has kind of been chucked at the side. You know, it's a very Amero-centric view of the world that emanates from D.C. and New York. And the people in the Baltics, and I mean Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, Republic of Georgia, they've had to deal with, you know, not just the specter of Russian aggression, but actual Russian aggression. You know, just go back to 2008 in Georgia. Uh, there's actually been a lot of uh, pretty big cyber attacks that have happened in Estonia in the last couple of years that were likely Russians as well. And I think that's where we have to kind of look and focus to next, because that's where there are a lot of vulnerable populations. I mean, some of these countries only have one or two million people. Uh, they do speak their own language, but they do have some Russian minorities there. Uh, they are in NATO, which I guess is their grand cover. Uh, but, you know, a lot of this is not going to be just, you know, with a, a brazen military you know, example. We've had the cloak and dagger stuff. I think that's why in 2014, when we had Maidan and we had... Um, everything that happened in the east of Ukraine, why people didn't take it more seriously is because it was not necessarily the Russian flag going in. It was local funding of rebels. And, you know, that's something that has been a consistent problem in Europe. There's a lot of Russian funding of particular political parties that is coming out more in the newspapers. We're, we're seeing that information. People are definitely more awakened now to what can happen when you have a power like Russia. And I think People cannot just sit in the armchair and say that, you know, the international relations theories of the last 50 years will work and there'll be some balance. It's just not true. We're not dealing with that anymore. We're dealing with active threats to people's sovereignty, to people's lives. And the more that we can do to inform people, I think that's number one, because most people don't know what has happened in Estonia. You know, most people don't know Lithuania. Most people don't know that these countries, that they've only been around since the fall of the Soviet Union. You know, these are proud, independent peoples. 
And the second that we allow any kind of Russian operation to trample over their borders, yeah, that's a that's a stain on humanity. You know, that's not to say that we know exactly where U.S. troops should go or if that should be the policy response, but at least be open to hearing these stories and at least be open to knowing that there are threats that exist in the world that are not directly the cause of U.S. agency. You know, all of these other peoples, Ukrainians, Latvians, Lithuanians, Estonians, they also have agency. And unfortunately, they're being trampled on by a lot of Russian boots at the moment. Yeah, and real quick, in the few minutes we got left, though, talk about those three countries in particular, because kind of like one thing we've been saying is, you know, every day the Ukrainians show bravery, it contrasts with the wickedness of what Putin's doing. The way they have gone with their market economies, they have been absolute superstars in freedom and an open market and their economies. That contrasts with the old order that Putin really seems to want, like, hey, they're ours for this old order. It's it's their national identity is they have been absolutely killing it the last couple of decades. And I don't think the world knows that part of the story. And I think they need to know that story now as to why we need to protect and help those people from a regressive regime of a tyrant. Yeah, there's, um, you know, all these books are not for show. I, I do have a book here by Mart Lahr. So he's the former uh, prime minister of Estonia. And, you know, when Estonia was kind of created, you know, they had their, their small heyday a bit after the First World War, but then were sucked up by the USSR. Uh, but sort of in their short time as an independent country, you know, they've gone from just being this little small provincial backwater that was connected to what was once Prussia to actually being like a super functioning, super highly technologically advanced country that is actually the envy of many corporations around the world. If we think of inventions like Skype, uh, TransferWise, you know, all of these have come from Estonia, from Estonian entrepreneurs. And these are countries that take all of these principles in hand. You know, Mark Lahr, in his book, when he's describing the early resistance movement uh, to the USSR, when he's talking about founding the Estonian state, you know, they took the principles of Milton Friedman. You know, he openly says that and they instilled them into government. And he said, we're going to make the people free. We're going to make sure that the state is not too big, give people the incentives to create value for people, allow entrepreneurs to heed the call. We don't need to have government to do that. And that's been the message in Estonia. It's been the message in Lithuania. And it was the message in the Republic of Georgia for a long time until fairly recently when elections have changed and now they're more pro-Russian politicians. But all of these places are, I tell you, they're often more committed to American principles and to, uh, you know, free enterprise and entrepreneurship uh, than definitely the, the normal political narrative in the United States. You know, these are places that people are very proud to say that they're free, that they have liberty. And that's not just social freedom, it's also economic liberty. And they provided us with great examples. You know, Estonia used to be, again, it's just uh, you know, 1.2 million people, something very small, uh, but you know, the average salary is getting up there. And this is a place that is not poor anymore, the people are doing well. And I think they provide a good example of the entire reason why we have freedom in the first place, why we have constitutions, why we have limited governments, it's so that people can flourish. And that's where they've been flourishing the most and the best, at least in the last 30 years. What a concept, freedom and let people have a little bit of freedom, let them self-determine and good things happen. Works every time they try it. Uh, Yal Elisowski, uh, Consumer Choice Center, let folks know where they can find you, you can follow her. Uh, your excellent radio program, all the great work Consumer Choice Center does. Y'all are everywhere now. Every time I turn around, it's like somebody else got added to the Consumer Choice Center. Uh, let people know where to find you and where to follow you, my friend. Yeah, sure. Or at ConsumerChoiceCenter.org. I'm over there on the Twitters at Yael OSS. 
And, uh, you know, we're playing stuff on the radio. We've got our podcasting. And very soon there for Hertel Radio, I'm going to set you all up and uh, be sure you get your Bitcoin stuff uh, so that people can donate to the program. Uh, if they enjoy the value that they're, they're getting from you, Andrew, they'll be able to uh, donate a little bit. So I'll get, I'll get you set up soon. Enough. I knew you were going to backdoor that on me, but that's fine. I appreciate it. Uh, and publicly thanking you like I always do. You, you have done a world of good when I, was, I had to learn how to do all this stuff from scratch, like how to do video, how to do audio. You were there for me. So this program doesn't happen without you, good sir. And I look forward to having you back on it real, real soon. Merci beaucoup. Yeah, see, and, then you, and then you go multilingual on me too. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you. <laughs> all right. All the best. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, our friend, West Virginia Esquire, uh, when Amy Comey Barrett was nominated to court, she did a whole lot of groundwork. I know it because I worked with her. I helped edit the pizzas. She did a four-part series on Amy Comey Barrett's case law background. Uh, she didn't take anybody's word for it. She did it herself, did some great work that kind of became a legendary piece at Ordinary-Times.com and a great example of her character and integrity because she said, I'll make up my mind after I read all the casework. Well, she's working on something similar to Kentaji Brown-Jackson, uh, President Biden's Supreme Court nominee that will be coming up for consideration here shortly. But she went in her Wednesday reach in her Wednesday Ritz feature at ordinary-times.com now available. Please go read it. I'm going to read a piece from it because she took a piece of social media that I've seen from other places as well. But this is one example where somebody tweeted this. They said Biden SCOTUS pick represents terrorist suspect as a public defender representing suspected terrorists. As a public defender, really, that's the criticism. But West Virginia Esquires, our friend M. Carpenter, uh, she wrote it this way. She said, so there's that. What is that? The fact that she performed her duties as an officer of the court by upholding constitutional guarantees to the right of counsel. Judge Jackson was a public defender. It was her job. She likely had no or little say in the cases she was signed. But even if she did, or even if she took the case for a fee as private counsel, so what? I was not part of a public defender's office, but I was on the appointment list as private counsel willing to represent indigenous clients. I also accepted cases privately for retainers. In both capacities, I defended criminals, guilty criminals. I had some clients I truly believed were innocents, and I knew some for a fact that were, were not. I represented accused child abusers and rapists and even a few alleged murderers. I never felt a shred of guilt about it, though. Some friends and family opined that they can never with Grafaws, and I would often see as an accomplice by complainants, victims, and law enforcement. I felt I was doing some of the most noble work in the legal profession. I still feel that way about criminal defense. Some lawyers during their careers, reading from M. Carpenter and Ordinary-Times.com here, find themselves as the mouthpiece for some seriously repugnant people. Just imagine that you somehow find yourself charged with the most heinous, disgusting crime you can think of. You're the accused in a case that made the front page the type of the case promoting a mob of torches and pitchforks outside the jail calling for your immediate hanging. Only thing is, you didn't do it, or it was an accident, or any of a hundred possible mitigating things. The public doesn't know that or care to hear that. All that matters is that you're accused of this horrific crime, and all they want is you under the jail for it. Now imagine that no one will help you, no lawyer is willing to protect your rights, because the things you're accused of is just so terrible that you are so low. You are now on your own before a court with no legal knowledge beyond that which you learned from Jack McCoy or Ben Matlock. You have no way to call witnesses. To point out that the prosecutor is breaking the rules or any ability to investigate your own case, you are a fish in a barrel and all the guns of the legal system are pointing at your head with no one to help. That is apparently the way this tweeter thinks things ought to be. I retweeted this nonsense, not with incredulity 
and had at least one response in favor of his dumb tweet. Quote, she's a political activist in robes, the tweeter said. I asked for examples from Judge Jackson's body of work. They had none, which is not surprising, since although they thought she had no judicial experience beyond her short stint on the Court of Appeals, but it's what he'd heard, you see. And she's a minority and she was a public defender, so it must be assumed she's a liberal political activist unfit for the bench. Judge Jackson's service as a public defender, even for a suspected terrorist, does not make her unfit to sit on the bench. In fact, in some ways, it makes her more qualified to do so as her already seated colleagues. She fought in the dirty trenches where corporate lawyers and law professors and in-house counsels and law clerks fear to tread. Is Judge Jackson otherwise suited for the job? I don't know. I'll let you know when I'm done shifting through hundreds of opinions to try to get a read on her. But if she isn't, Judge Jackson's representation of unsavory clients is not why. That's our brilliant friend, M. Carpenter. She's at West Virginia Esquires on the Twitter.com, writing in her Wednesday Ritz legal feature at Ordinary-Times.com. Go read the whole thing and look forward to her breakdown of Kentaji Brown-Jackson. Also, her deep dive into Amy Comey Barrett, well worth your time. It is linked in the piece. More her tell right after this. Welcome back to Hurtel. You know we love to end on a good note, an uplifting note. Usually involves food. Today it involves food. In fact, it involves one of my favorites. I know he's a polarizing figure to some, but Guy Fieri, the mayor of Flavortown himself. Are you aware of all the charitable work he does? This is from Showbiz Cheat Sheet. Um, Food Network celebrity Guy Fieri credits his parents for his constant desire to lift people up and give back. He recently told Showbiz Cheat Sheet he was raised by hippie parents. That's in quotes. But he also credits the small town he grew up in because the people were dedicated to giving back to the community and helping others. Fieri strives to use his platform to make a positive contribution in any way he can. His parents, Jim and Penelope Ferry, he changed his name to the original Fieri of their immigration past. But the other thing about Guy Fieri you may not know, all the charitable giving that comes from all that kindness he learned from his parents. He started a foundation to help others. He said, my Guy Fieri Foundation is about supporting our veterans. We have a big veterans program, first responder, women, children, and we have a reading advocacy program that we are now doing where we inspire kids with a reward to read so that when you have good platform that I have, it's really a shame to waste it on just being about guy when it can take it and share it with others. And that's what I choose to do. Fieri also quietly donates perishable food from guys, grocery games to local shelters. He prepared and distributed over 2000 meals to first responders following the car wildfire in 2018. Additionally, Fieri managed to raise $21 million for the restaurant employees impacted by coronavirus. He created the Restaurant Employee Relief Fund, funding over $43,500 grants to restaurant employees. So Guy Fieri, he's loud. You see him all over TV. You see him in commercials. I'm a big Food Network watcher with my family and household. We love food, but he does a lot of good in the community underneath all that weird spiky hair and catchphrases. So good on Guy Fieri, spreading a lot of love and a lot of money to make the world a little bit better whether it's Flavor Town or your town. That'll do it for Hurt Tell today. Good to end on a happy note. We always like to do that. If you're missing anything from the programs, if you're subscribed on the YouTube channel or subscribed on any of the podcasting platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google, any way you want to get the program, all the, all the episodes of Hurt Tell are there for you. We've got quite the archive going now. Every weekday morning, if you're subscribed by the time you wake up, at least on the East Coast of the U.S., you'll have that day's Heard Tell episode in the afternoon. You'll have Good Talks. That's the interview portion of that day's episode. 
Both of those will be archived in perpetuity on all the platforms. You can go back and get anything you miss. A lot of our guests are repeat guests. If you missed them the first time or two and you're new to the program, go back and listen to the old stuff. Also, long-form podcasts, when we do deep dives into things, last one we did was on mental health with Dr. Catherine Gordon. Those are all on there, and it's all free. only costs you a click, but make sure you're subscribed. That way you don't miss anything new that pops up. Also, you really want to do us a favor, something else that only costs a click, share us on your social media. We'd sure appreciate it. Let people know our programs we're checking out. We're working really hard to give you the best possible program we can, turning down the news, talking about only the things that matter, not wasting time on anything that don't, and trying to do a little bit better than what we found before us. That's what we do. As long as you keep listening and watching, we'll keep doing it. We're going to do it again tomorrow. So until then, wherever you and yours are, Cross street around the world. We hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. And we'll see you tomorrow for a Friday edition of Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.